0: In a world where three pudgy middle school history teachers discuss random aspects of history. Well, uh, that's, uh, that's all I got.
1: Oh, Hatfield, we got you. Yeah, I, wait, who you call him Pudgy? Yeah, man, that's kind of rude. No, I'm rude.
0: It's the History Bros Podcast. <laughs>
1: It is the history, Bros. Once again. Do you need to hug it out or is it going to be okay? Or? What, seriously, Brian, I start, I start the recording and you're going to ask me if I need to hug it out with people? <laughs> I mean, I get it. I get it. Hatfield yeah. and I off the air tend to get a little intense with each oh, other.
0: Oh, no, it's not even going to have to be off the air. It can be totally on the air. I don't care. Well, I mean, you know, I get I, to I fights just, with people online all the time.
1: Yeah, we know. Uh, you, what is it? You can't not poke the bear. I just don't like it when you do it in front of company. True. I mean, we have one of our amazing, amazing guests back with us today. And I'm unbelievably excited about it. And here you are.
0: I have to say he's making making broken records for guests.
1: That's fine. But here you are making fun of me for being from Iowa, God's country, the place that the field of dreams said was like heaven. And you're giving wait, me a wait, hard time. Wait, wait,
0: wait. I'm not, I'm not making fun of you for being from Iowa. I'm merely expressing pity that you're from Iowa. There's a difference.
1: Yeah, well, no, North Carolina ain't mm. no bag of fun tricks either. So, anyway. Opin- as as Dalton said, opinions vary. Well, let's put it this way. We'll, we'll, We'll say it this way. You're originally from Georgia, and I'm pretty sure Sherman had something to say about that. So, we'll leave it there.
0: Oh, those three months I spent there, that really wounds me. Hey,
1: you get upset with us every time we bring up Sherman and how he... Yeah,
0: and so now I've disarmed you of it, so move
1: on. (laughs) Uh, Whatever. Today, Kevin Bryant joins us once again, our favorite historical expert on the uh, man that is known as Frederick Douglass. However, today we've got a new topic, Um, and uh, how fitting as we close out... Black History Month. Um, Today's going to be a good one. I I really enjoy it. So, Kevin, welcome back. And uh, I I can't even pronounce the guy's name. You're going to have to tell me who it is that we're talking about again.
2: Thank you for having me. His name, very difficult to pronounce, is Carter Woodson.
1: Carter Woodson. Thank (laughs) you. That was my nice way of saying I forgot his name. His name that's was John crazy. Smith. I can certainly say, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, yeah, well.
0: Yeah, but there's an um, but, but you're not telling people there's an umlaut in that Woodson, though. That's that's that people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that. what
1: throw, throws everybody off. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah.
0: um my, well, my first question is, um, as we go into this, is why is Black History Month the shortest month of the year? Why did they choose that? Is there was I mean, of all the months that they could have had. Why did they choose February?
1: You have no idea how relevant that question is, Hatfield. Yeah, you have that's no one idea. One of the
2: major uh, arguments that people will push back on sometimes with Black History Month being in February is, oh, it's only the one with 28 days. You know, it's meant as kind of an insult, that sort of passing away. The reason it is in February is because Dr. Carter G. Woodson selected it to be in February. And when he started what we know as Black History Month, he started it in 1926. It was Negro History Week at that time and the week that he selected was very, very intentional. He selected the second week in February because it had two major birthdays in it for remembrance.
1: Oh. One being Abraham
2: Lincoln, and then the other being Frederick Douglass. He wanted one week that joined those two individuals' birthdays, which were already being celebrated in many circles of Black America separately together. You make a week with those two as the anchor points in it, devoted to this full history, and then later, It expands into February, so it was intentionally chosen for a point to be that, to harness these key individuals in the American story of President Lincoln and Frederick Douglass.
1: So what I find very intriguing about all this, and it's not so much intriguing, I find it hilarious, is Hatfield is trying to be funny, only to find out that's exactly what we were talking about today, and he probably didn't know it. So take that one, Hatfield. And that was an amazing explanation.
0: How how would I not know that we were talking— we had emails back and forth about this but you know i'm not not to not to like show people what's behind the veil but you know yeah we we kind of <laughs> specifically chose at this what? subject because it was the end of black history month
1: whoa, what whoa, 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 whoa. at what point did you learn how to use email
0: well it was back in the 90s before you were born <laughs> but um yeah we Aww. uh in fact i had a management class that my first and when i was in college when i was doing my undergrad whose my first assignment was to go to the library and send him an email and i had to write down what his email address was because they wouldn't populate it and i would have to go in there and i was like man this is just Mm. this is it takes too much this is never going to catch on and i was i was obviously wrong on on that one but um but, yes, yeah, so Carter, um, whoops, I'm sorry, Carter Woodson. Um, Carter Woodson is um, the founder of Black History Month. Is that correct? Is that a way that we could describe him, Kevin? I think
2: that's fair to say. He never saw it as the full month. That came about after his passing, but he's the guy who started the journey.
0: That okay, so. Towards Black History month. Okay, didn't so- become
2: the full month till 1970 after he was gone.
0: Oh, okay. So, okay. So then, tell us, um, tell us about him, and then you know, what was the purpose of having a a a Black History Week? I mean, tell us what the
2: the thought process,
0: the steps are for that.
2: Yeah, Carter G. Woodson has an amazing story to just kind of sail through it real fast. He's born 1875 in Virginia. His parents were both enslaved before him, so he's coming out of Reconstruction Virginia. He has to help his family. Just by doing the basic task of survival doesn't have a chance to get an education for much of his life is able eventually to get a little bit of schooling equivalent to like a grade school level education before he has to go back and help on the farms he's able to go to high school once he's 20 years old goes to frederick douglas high school at that graduates into only two years from his high school and goes on and gets to college but one of the things that's motivating him as a young child that's going to eventually compel him to go to high school is he spends a lot of time In his day labor, working as a coal miner and as a coal miner in West Virginia, as a young man Mm -hmm. working amongst many of those who have formerly served as United States colored troops during the Civil War. So he's side by side with many of these black veterans Mm -hmm. of the war. And he's hearing their stories about their experiences and what they went through and connecting that with his parents' stories of slavery and how dehumanizing that was for them. But he recognizes, because of the limited education he had, that while he can learn a ton about life from those veterans, he's the one that can read. And so they ask him to gather around and, you know, read the newspaper to them. They have resource to these stories, but he has the connections that can share the modern world and what's going on so they create these little circles of kind of intellectualism where he learns from them while also having the ability to share with them the things on the written page and that really fosters a desire to get these stories in ways that can be preserved and can be captured so he he, knows so wait he's
0: he's born in virginia yes and where and where is frederick Douglass high school uh so that's gonna be in west virginia
2: there's a is there still a Frederick Douglass High School in West Virginia? Uh, I, I don't know if it still exists, but that one that he goes to is brand new. It was, I believe, the first uh, high school, the first all black high school in West Virginia. That's a part and a lo- of what compels him to go there once he's. I out think
0: right. a lot of people may not be fully aware of some of the listeners is that West Virginia did not come into existence until the Civil War because they wanted to separate yeah. from Virginia to, I guess kind of fight along with the union um which may be maybe kind of surprising in today's i guess um um climate or whatnot but um so that okay that's so he goes to school in west virginia okay so um and now he's uh he's in the coal he's mining for coal in west virginia now
1: Uh is that correct a quick Google search on uh, Wikipedia would say that, yes, that building is still around uh, and is still in, in use.
2: Is it still called nice. Frederick Douglass High School?
1: It's called Douglas Junior and Senior High School in Huntington, <laughs> oh, Cal- cool. in Huntington, West Virginia.
2: Yep, that's the one. Nice. So, yeah, so Excellent. from there, he, he gets uh, the equivalent of, like, a bachelor's degree and then continues on, eventually finds himself at Berea College, finds himself at the University of Chicago, gets a master's in history. But what really kind of pushes him is once he gets a master's degree in history in the very, very early 20th century.
1: Oh, I screwed a up. Position. Sorry, I screwed up. They rebuilt. The, it's not the original building, but the high school name and whatnot still exists. Not the original oh. building, though. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Okay. No no worries, no worries. Go ahead. He takes
2: a position with the U.S. War Department, goes out to the Philippines, and works with them as an educator. And there, shortly after, you know, the whole Filipino insurrection, the war, things that are going on, so the U.S. government's still very hands-on and that learns a lot about teaching learns additional languages while he's there and also learns some of these concepts about someone from the outside coming in and teaching natives about their own history and how maybe there's some questions to what's unfolding here and maybe that's something that's kind of giving introspective thought for him the big changing moment for him though is he comes back from the Philippines. He's already been a principal at that same high school that he goes to, but now he enrolls in a PhD program at Harvard University. Mm. He completes it in 1912, making him the only person in American history to have enslaved parents to get a PhD. Which oh, is wow. a huge deal. Only the second black man ever to get one. WB Du Bois being previous to him. But in the course of that PhD program for him, one of his professors tells him straight up said, this is the quote here, the Negro has no history. Woodson is going to recognize, obviously, that's not true. He's going to push back on it and say, you know, you know, that's not true. And in a nutshell, the response from this Harvard professor to the assertion that the Negro has no history, is he tells Dr. Woodson to prove it. And that's what launches him in many ways on this life's quest, bringing everything together, is these highest levels of academia are saying that this history doesn't exist wow it's just not a real thing and in that moment what i imagine the future dr woodson is hearing is your parents have no history meaning none of their experiences matter those soldiers the veterans who you worked with in the coal mines none of their stories matter people like frederick Douglass and other these names that you grew up with none of those stories matter they do not exist in the american narrative his life's work is underway now to try to prove that
0: What's the rationale real. behind that? Is it just the like the the kind of still inequality racism of the time or I mean I mean because I mean if you read Frederick Douglass, you know, he talks about how you know in his, you know, in I guess in at least the the first autobiography that he writes, you know, he doesn't really know a whole lot about, you know, his birth and that kind of stuff and there's that sort of history that's no history meaning that it's not recorded, but in terms of is it is it not recorded or is it not valuable? I guess is the point that I'm, or the question I'm trying to ask in this guy's mind.
2: Yeah. I, I think those are interconnected there that if the history is not recorded, then it increases the likelihood that it will be lost over time. And so in in traditions that use the oral tradition where you kind of pass things down verbally, while that may be respected at family levels or other on the institutional level, people are going to say, well, that's just oral tradition. You know, we can't really verify those sorts of things. and, from Dr. Woodson's perspective, I believe, anyone saying that is recognizing that without that history, without that grounding, then we have no legitimacy in this nation or in the broader world, and if we have not accomplished anything in their eyes, they will never Mm. expect anything from us moving forward into the future, because Mm. we're just a people who've been drug along mindlessly with no ability to prove otherwise, and that power is a huge element of Dr. Woodson's emphases, because if we are... He's going to go so far as to say, if a race has no history, it has no worthwhile tradition. It becomes a negligible factor in the thought of the world, and it stands in danger of being exterminated. And extermination is something that he is seeing in the news around him throughout Jim Crow through lynching. It sure looks like we're already being exterminated in many ways. And how much of this is because if there is no history, then no one has any reason to value us because we have not in their eyes been seen as respected and offering anything in the progress of the United States of America. And if we've done nothing in its past, we have nothing to contribute to its future.
0: And I I think, so I think I can see that pathway going forward into the creation and his wanting to have the black history week. Okay. Wow.
1: Well, I think there's, there's one thing I think we have to talk about with this or at least mention I think this is the perfect argument for or perfect story to tell when people say, well, why are you changing history in the schools? Why are you telling all these stories? Why are you talking about all these things that aren't the typical uh, rich, white, male, you know, um, the narratives that we've always told through the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s? I think this is the perfect story of why. I think this is the best argument of why we have to do that.
2: One of his seminal works that Dr. Woodson is going to write, so you know a little bit further ahead in the story, is going to be a book called The Miseducation of the Negro, and it's entirely about how the educational institutions of this nation have failed the people, because they are ingraining certain versions of history and causing people to believe that they know the truth, and therefore they fully are convinced that they are educated. But what they do not realize is they have been miseducated, often by teachers who were also miseducated and that just just spirals down and as it keeps spiraling eventually it's going to end in slaughter or the extermination of it, one or the other and the he's classroom do- is where all of it starts
1: and he's doing this in what the 1920s 1930s
2: he starts the first negro history week in 1926 but he begins his full-scale uh, historical work before that in 1915 when he creates an organization called the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, the very first professional historical association to study the black experience. And that organization still exists to this present day. Man, he Where is... He starts um, it up and then they launch a journal and immediately begin publishing scholarship on the black experience because they weren't allowed, even paying dues, they weren't allowed to go or publish into like the American Historical Association meetings or anything like that.
1: He's really a man of ahead, ahead of his time then is what it really comes down to to me.
0: Well, what's so. but yes. kind of piggybacking on what Rude was saying, um, there was a book that was released um, is a within the past few years called Barracoon, and it was uh, a woman had uh, gone down to I'm wanting to say uh, it was one of the southern states. Um, let me pull this up real quick. Um, Zora Neale Hurston, um, she, um, she went down and interviewed what is considered to be one of the last imported slaves, um, uh, that was brought in. And this, and this, she went down in 1927, she went to Plateau, Alabama, just outside Mobile to interview 86 year old Cudjo Lewis of the millions of men, women, and children transported from Africa to America. As slaves, Kujo was the only person alive to tell the story of his integral part of the nation's history. Um, Hurston was there to record Kujo's firsthand account of the raid that led to his capture and bondage 50 years after the Atlantic slave trade was outlawed. He was actually smuggled in um, on a ship. And um, uh, she wanted to get this published and what was what's kind of fascinating is that um, both white and uh, uh, black sides, I guess, of the coin did not want this published at the time. That's why it was only released for the first time like a few years ago, because whites were like, you know, we don't want to, you know, add more to, you know, us looking bad, so we shouldn't get this published. And African Americans uh, were like, we don't want to get this published because it kind of shines a negative light on the participation of other uh, tribes in Africa during that time. And so it's interesting how those sort of political views and those con- the, those can affect how history is taught, because this is, this would be an incredibly, you know, important story to tell. I actually have a copy of it. Um, but um, it's, it's interesting to see kind of the, both sides working against having a story like that told in that capacity so this is kind of interesting
2: but that's the tension that he's in and Zora Neale Hurston among others is going to work with Dr. Woodson for a considerable time he's going to be funding some of her research and other things and giving her some of the publication arm because he starts a whole publishing house to produce this thing because he has that same issue of being like like we can't find people to publish this scholarship that we're going so we just have to take care of it and Do it all on our own. He has to become a one-stop shop for everything, training everyone, mentoring everyone. And in short, what he does throughout the course of his lifetime is he is remembered, even while he's alive, as the father of black history. If you have ever taken a course in black history in school, it is because of Dr. Woodson and his efforts to get those institutions of higher learning and to get them respected as fields of study. I think for a name that a lot of people don't recognize, Dr. Carter G. Woodson, who is that? Every single year we are all impacted and you still see social media, you know, pockets of people arguing about what he's contributed to our society that we still go through year after year after year is such a profound influence on us, but such an unfamiliar name to many, many people.
0: Mm. And what is his Mm -hmm. so what is his relationship to um, like uh, to your line of work? in this particular case like how how how
2: do you know so much about him and how were you introduced to this particular individual so with the national park service who i work for the specific team that i'm on we oversee three different historic sites simultaneously so depending okay. on the day of the week when we were in normal operations we'd be at one of these three in a given time the most famous one that everybody's heard of is the frederick douglas national historic site that's the big one that gets all the attention we also oversee this home which is the Carter G. Woodson Home National Historic Site, also located in D.C. And then the third one, also in D.C., is the Mary McLeod Bethune Council House National Historic Site, who is the preeminent female civil rights leader of the same generation as Dr. Woodson. So our team does those three side-by-side, which collectively are all elements of that larger Black history story in America, just snippets of it. That's why So some days I'm at Frederick Douglass House, some days I'm at the Bethune House, some days I would be at the Woodson House, and while we're in this virtual setting, we are all amongst our team doing content for all three of them.
0: Was okay. the um, was the protection or the uh, the Woodson how or the, the protecting of that was that kind of in a similar fashion as uh, the fundraising and whatnot for the Frederick Douglass
2: house or did they have different? No. So the Woodson home has a very different history and how it got into the National Park Service. So the, the Douglass home was preserved almost immediately for the most part. And various thing, various groups came together to begin preserving that. For the Woodson home, he died in 1950, but he died very suddenly of a heart attack. So even though he was a little bit up there in years, people weren't quite prepared for that. And the way Dr. Woodson ran his organization, he ran it in such a way that he did basically everything. I mean, he really struggled to give portions of this responsibility off because he felt it was so important. I mean, this is life and death stuff with this historical scholarship that we're talking about. So he needed to make sure that, you know, every T was crossed, every I was dotted. But what that means, though, when he passes away, there is a massive vacuum. And even if there's a a breadth of supporters around him who care about the mission, they don't always know how exactly he did some of these different things. So his association kind of limps on for a while after his passing. But among those processes, things start falling apart a little bit, both institutionally as well as just structurally. And by the 1970s, 20 years after he passes, uh, his leadership, his organization moves their headquarters from his home that it had stayed in to a new site. And the home that he had lived in just begins to fall into disrepair, becomes an abandoned property, more or less. Oh, wow. And begins really collapsing, falling apart until there's various drives that come in 1976. It becomes a, gets on the National Register because that's when Black History Month first starts with presidential proclamation. Yeah. And you know, so, oh, well, that's fine. This building's still here? Maybe we should do something about that just keeps falling in disrepair until 1990s. And then early 2000s is when Congress start putting some petitions forward, to having some surveys, you know, see if the Park Service can do this or that. A bill is passed and eventually 2003, the National Park Service is allowed to acquire the home, but there's really not much left of it. There's the structure, you know, is there in floorboards, but it needs a complete overhaul and it mm. took the better part of a decade to get it overhauled to the point where it could then be open to the public.
1: Oh, wow, wow. So I guess I'm curious, um, and I don't even know if we did this when we talked about Frederick. Can we talk about where in the city all of these are located in case I want to go and and visit them when I'm out there?
2: Yeah. So the Frederick Douglass home is in the Anacostia neighborhood of Washington, D.C., which is a southeast part of the city, uh, just across the Anacostia River from the Naval Yard. So if you're in D.C., kind of the area where you may think of like the stadiums and the Naval Yard, Mm -hmm. it's that far this quadrant over there so you you got it's kind of by itself in terms of like historic sites
1: so if i'm to visit. if i'm gonna go there i'm gonna cross oh what's the bridge there right by the uh national mm-hmm. stadium that's the one right th- isn't it
2: so that's a new one they're built they're, they're replacing that bridge now with the fittingly enough named frederick Douglass bridge oh really will be one of the ways that you can take or the closer one would be the 11th street bridge that's the, the one i was thinking about that uh, john wilkes booth took on his yeah yeah Okay, That'll that, take you over towards the Douglas Home. The okay. Douglas Home is separate. The other two, both the Carter G. Woodson House and the Mary McLeod Bethune Home, are both very, very close to each other. They're within blocks of each other in the Shaw neighborhoods of D.C., which is much, much closer to the Capitol than, say, the Douglas Home is. So like, so it's in east of the capital. with all the traffic circles. East of the Capitol? Uh, let me get my geography straight. Yeah, east of the Capitol. Okay, so it's well, kind of uh... northeast of the Capitol.
1: Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yep. So
0: I'm just looking, uh, looking online. I've looked up the the pictures of the house. So for some people, it it's not like a standalone structure. It's actually kind of like a yeah, it's a row house. It's a row house, yeah.
2: It's a whole whole block full of homes, all that share walls. So it's a pretty narrow home. It's three stories tall, but very very narrow space in there. So not a big home in the grand scheme of things. Doctor Woodson's going to have the headquarters for his association on the first level. He's gonna have his personal office and a research archive that he is creating, uh, compiling some of these early black history. Your is gonna live on the third level of the home. And I can't stress this enough, like what he's putting together in this house is, I don't know if it's the first, but it's certainly among the very first to be taken seriously archives of the black experience in America that he's piecing together, where he's collecting these things from all over. And when he starts Negro History Week, it's not intended to just be let's celebrate a couple key figures in history and highlight, you know, the few first to do these things. He's emphasizing that it is students, number one, who this needs to be for, and their responsibility is not just to say, you know, find us some significant figures and do some reports on them, but find the oldest people in your families, the oldest people in your communities, and write down their stories before they are gone. hmm in those years you know we're looking at 1920s 1930s you still have people alive from that point who not only served in the civil war but would have experienced slavery and it's very clear within a generation those people are going to be gone let's get these stories before we lose anything else than we've already lost and he says in these things as you're looking for resources for black history month or you know what becomes black History Month, i'll send you tons of stuff but you also have a responsibility to send me everything you can about your family your community and the elders men and women who are in it so we can start documenting some of the history because as we know even now with enslavement it's so hard to document so much and how much harder would it be without the efforts of him grasping what he could in those final few years and then just saying I don't know how I'm going to handle this I don't know where we're going to preserve it we're just going to pile it here in the house for now and it'll be available to anybody that can get here it's a priceless resource that still benefits all of our scholarships to this day
0: was he able to do a lot of um, that sort of um, storytelling or, uh, I guess, verbal history with his parents
2: to kind of collect that information? Or, Yeah, that's, that's some of how it starts for him, is he gets several key pieces of information from his family. And one of the things that his dad really impresses upon him amidst the larger stories that they're sharing of, of uh, enslavement, his dad is telling him to never let anyone look down on you. Never let anyone put you into a subservient role. You can stand up and look eye to eye and toe to toe with anybody. And I think coming from someone who saw enslavement and punishments and beating, that takes on some next level meaning mm. for him. And so he's committed then in that point that I have absolutely no reason, even if my mother and my father once upon a time were enslaved, I have no reason to feel ashamed of my ancestors. I feel power. I feel strength. I feel courage in that ancestry. And I want to make sure their stories, which means so much to me, are echoed by the millions of others who will also have that same background somewhere in their family tree that slavery was awful, but it is nothing to be ashamed of, contrary to what we are kind of being belittled with in some of the historical takings, that through those it is problematic, it is traumatic, but it also is full of resistance and inspiration, and we need to highlight that as well.
0: So he goes, okay, so he, he goes and he pursues his doctorate. And at what point, do I mean, is was it during that time? I mean, obviously history is a big deal because he's, you know, he's getting a degree in that. Um, is it, at what point does he, you know, as he's going through this and learning about the history and having this, you know, derogatory conversation um, that he sits there and says, hey, this is, this is what I need to do. This is what I need to kind of show or prove to this person or prove to everybody that this history is important. And then what were those steps that he wound up having to take and then getting this proclamation, you know, kind of walk us through that.
2: So when that conversation happens, I think that fires up in him something that was already in him from his previous Mm -hmm. conversations Mm and just further elevated him to the recognition that even you know harvard's not the end-all be-all but to many folks around the world that's kind of like the crown jewel mm-hmm. of like american intellectualism at least in an education so he's like even here these distinguished harvard professors are saying this stuff just isn't of any value or worth or even worse it doesn't exist and so if they aren't willing to mm-hmm. exist this thing is real and this thing being my past and the past of folks like me if they won't admit that it's real then how on earth am i supposed to convince you know The person on the farm down next to where my family is sharecropping that these things matter how do i convince the teachers that they need to convince their students that these things matter and if you can't convince any of that then you're setting yourself up for complete destruction so he's Mm. on this campaign immediately to begin writing and three years after his phd he's already had a bunch of meetings with other people that he's trying to get uh, connecting with him around chicago he launches this organization for the express purpose of our future may be determined by our ability to explain and publish about our past and that history is not just something that we need to know because you know history is interesting like history might just be the key to full equality because history controls our thinking it controls how we are informed by our world and he says once if you can control a man's thinking you do not have to worry about his action. When you determine what a man shall think you do not have to concern yourself about what he shall do if you make a man feel that he is inferior you do not have to compel him to accept an inferior status he will seek it for himself Mm. if you make a man think that he is justly an outcast you do not have to order him to the back door he will go without being told and if there is no back door his very nature will demand one so through history it's this cause to uplift everyone saying it's not just a bunch of white people who need to be taught about black history so they will change their ways, saying many across the black experience in America, he seems to believe, are being convinced that they are of no value because their ancestors were of no value. And so they deserve nothing better than the current condition that's being inflicted upon them by an oppressive white institution around them. So this is how you unlock it. So that's where I love, because it's he sees history as a tremendous tool of resistance and of betterment and of progress. The simple thing of just studying and writing you know, biographies and research, this is the core of setting the whole foundation that's going to be built onto in Black History Week and programs with local school kids. He gathers the kids around him. He's going to take it further. He gathers kids around on his front porch. He'll hand out ice cream to get kids to come by and sit around the porch with him. And then when he's got them there, he tells them stories about the leaders and the courage that was displayed by people on the African continent. In previous years, he's passing down these or trying to get this idea of pride that being black in America is nothing to be ashamed of. It's nothing that should be embarrassed or problematic of a traumatic history. It is a sense that you are descended from a powerful line of ancestors, all of whom battled. And you are that moment that they have been leading to, that they have presented you this strength, this energy, this courage to continue challenging everything that they already built with their backs often sometimes by force to build those things. It's all been built on there already. We need to carry this forward. And in so doing so, we understand there is nothing to be ashamed of. There is pride. There is strength. There is courage in this. And that means you can do anything you want to. And if you believe that, you can change the world. But the key is you have to believe that first. So he's on like a psychological mission in a lot of ways. to convince people this matters and you matter. And because of that... Wow. America's going to change. We just have to get this thing published. Get these things published.
0: Was he going to try and 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 create like a a series of books, or was it going to be like a museum, or how is he going to try and um, not only preserve but educate?
2: Nonstop this entire time. So he publishes over twenty books throughout his life, but through his association, the publishing house, they are publishing dozens of other works uh, constantly. They are publishing also a journal called the Journal of Negro History which still to this day is in print and has never missed an episode through World Wars, through the Depression, been going Mm. solid publishing on the Black experience there. He now expands shortly after he's got this journal up and running, successfully realizes that's great, we're getting the scholarship out there, but we got to connect because, you know, a journal is generally for subject matter experts by subject matter experts and whatever it is. So you got to connect with the students. So they launched the Negro History Bulletin. Which is designed to get to the school kids. It's basically like lesson plans for teachers. Say, like, you know, Dr. Woodson, I'm very interested in what you're saying, but like, I got all this stuff I'm worried about in my classroom. You know, I don't have time to create something new. And he's got this material. Here is what you need. Have these Negro history education boxes. So when you're talking about launching something new like Negro history, I'm not asking you to create some new lesson plan or whatever. Here is what you need to get started. Take it and run with it. Mm. You got to get to those students at the first level. He's going to say that. One of the things about like lynching, which is a big crime, uh, just, just unfolding around him, he says, fighting lynching is important, but we need to fight the cause of lynching. And he's going to say there would be no lynching if it did not start in the schoolroom. Really, because these lessons are being ingrained from people's earliest kind of understandings, and it's again that miseducation idea: you are educated, but you are miseducated. And so, what is one of the one of the many extensions of that? Is the lynching? Is the bigotry? Is the oppression? Is the the systems that are around? Because we've been educated, believe it's supposed to be that way, or at least conditioned amongst white Americans who are going through the education that this is just simply the way things are. But mm. if we start changing the hearts and minds of those youngest generations moving forward, then in the end, that's going to hopefully challenge the large or more attention grabbing episodes that are going on. So he's so he's. Um reaching out he's
0: compiling all this information he's publishing newsletters he's publishing books he's you know trying to reach out to you know the education community um what kind of obviously what kind of pushback is he getting um during this time if any what but i would imagine that you know in this you you're talking jim crow obviously so um there's got to be some mm-hmm. uh, some pushback from, you know, uh, people of white influence and and possibly even, you know, um, some African-Americans not wanting to maybe draw attention or something, I would imagine. Um, but what sort of pushback is he getting uh, during this time?
2: Yeah, he is getting pushback, but uh, some of the main pushback is coming from people like W.E.B. Du Bois or other from some of the other prominent black intellectuals Mm. of his time who just believe that he's going about things in the wrong way. There's a, there's lots of questions going on, especially when we come through like 1919 and that red summer where there's so many kind of these, what I don't know, race riots or whatever the the terminology to be used where people are being slaughtered in different places. of saying, yeah, you know, scholarship's important, but like, dude, seriously, that's the least of our concerns right now is publishing these new biographies or these new studies of, you know, black churches through the civil wars as, We need bold action to solve the men and women being killed at this point in time. So some are arguing that he's just simply a little bit out of touch. He's playing a long game, and you're not guaranteed to survive a long game. Seems to be what some are saying. You're playing for the hearts and minds of future generations, and we're just trying to survive next year, which is not a guarantee in the Hmm. present crisis. So it's a tension between activism and intellectualism, although Woodson sees them as one and the same. Mm. But... I mean, that's the thing, is how long can you see the suffering there and say, yes, I'm solving that, but maybe for you next week when the clan rides up on you, what I'm doing right now is not really going to do anything to prevent that very real clan violence for you in this moment.
1: Well, it seems to me that the appropriate, and maybe maybe he did see this, it seems like you have to have both. And he can fo- has the ability to focus on his side of what they're doing, and W.E.B. Dubois... Can focus on his side of what they're doing. They can have the same effect and goals, but it seems like you almost have have to have both to be able to make that kind of change. Because, yes, you can ask demand immediate change for survival, and it's probably necessary. But at the same time, if you've done nothing to create the structure afterwards, what do you have to stand on once you've you've had the the knee jerk change? You know, if if that makes any sense.
2: Yeah, that's because if, if you're only solving, like you're saying, if you're only solving that short term, the needs of the now moment, then maybe you're able to solve it. But then who's to say, you know, three weeks from now, you're not right back there again and you're just endlessly stomping out the fires right. when they come without trying to figure out where this fire is coming from. So, yeah, I do think the answer is found in a, a solution or a, a mix of different options that are going in there of which this is a critical one. But for Woodson, I think a larger expression of what he feels that he is doing, even though he's really narrowing in on the kind of the scholarship, the history, the school approaches. He's recognizing as his work is expanding and gaining influence, that is also naturally going to motivate folks to take action in the now to make something happen. That while he may be saying, I'm creating this thing for you, says you're going to read that right now and you're not going to think, oh, I'm going to educate my kids about this, you know, in a generation. You're going to say, yeah, and I'm hitting the street right now to go make this change, to, to live up to, you know, the, the legacy of my ancestors who, you know, fought back against their enslavers or who stood in that, you know, the battle lines at Fort Wagner during the Civil War, you know, that's courage. I need the courage now to go stand down and confront
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know the white supremacists who are out there, you know, burning through my town. Sure.
1: Well, that makes sense. And
0: to uh, and, and just to verify it's uh, it's Bois, not Dubois.
2: Whatever.
1: Yeah, just, you know, it's
0: it's it's a common <laughs> misconception, but um, you know,
1: anyway, there.
0: Louisiana.
1: Well, when right. we get the boys back together, uh, you know, sorry, that was terrible. That was horrible. I have a, a question uh, for, for, in this, though. <laughs> um, I'm curious to know how famous was Woodson in his day. Obviously, we haven't necessarily carried that fame <laughs> into the current era, and hopefully we can change that here with this and, and, and more uh, awareness. But, like, how well known was he to the people of his own time?
2: Yeah, he was very, very well-known amongst most folks of his own time. So again, his own time, he's born 1875, he lives until 1950, so he's about 74 when he passes, and especially across Black America, you certainly knew who Dr. Woodson was during his life. He does travel, he gives speeches, things, but his publications are going all over the country at that time, and he's offering things for free generally. We now know him through Negro History Week, which is fully up and running for almost 25 years by the time he passes away. White America, especially in the intellectual, the historical intellectual world, is certainly aware of him. But in terms of his broader knowledge, just across you know the everyday America, if you can use that phrase and whatever that means, I don't know that a lot of folks, especially outside of the D.C. area, would have really been aware of who he was, unless they were aware of some of his influences from like the Negro History Week at their schools. Okay, because within just a couple years, Negro History Week does catch on and is rapidly he's getting demand or requests from white teachers for supplies so they can begin doing Negro History Week educations where they are. Oh wow! So his work catches on more so than I think some of his name does. And I think some of his name recognition even today depends on where you're from. So for folks like out here in the D.C. area, which is where the home is, he seems to be incredibly well known uh, as a figure amongst all cross sections of individuals. And it's a common part of the curriculum, all those things, to talk about Dr. Woodson throughout the year. I think that's a larger implication on where someone is from, whether they've heard him. Like, in my case, for example, I live in Washington, D.C. I'm not a native to D.C. As coming from Illinois, just being honest, I'd never heard of him. Mm. Or if my teachers talked about him, and maybe they did. If they did, Mm. it wasn't in such a way that I retained it or that, you know, it sunk in with me. So he wasn't heavily influenced. And I think it's a regional thing on how mm. much you may or may not know about him. Going back to maybe his argument that the teachers kind of shape what we know. That I, well, we know yeah. his work again. We just don't know him, depending well, bring, on where you are.
0: Brings right. up an interesting question. If uh, a teacher's wanting to teach about uh, Woodson, where is a good, like, where are some good resources, some uh, introductory or teaching resources for teachers?
2: So I would say the one of the best is the Carter G. Woodson Home National Historic Site in 38 Ninth Street in Washington, D.C., where I hear there's a very good staff of dedicated park rangers, numerous of them, who could, could do all sorts of things that you need. Uh, beyond that, his association that he launched is still in existence today. They have tons of resources, so they changed their name over time, so they're now the Association for the Study of African American Life and History, or ASALA. Is their acronym? Mm. A-S-A-L-H dot org. Go to their website, connect with them. They've got lots of great things because they still actively publish or still actively engage. They work with us on the site. I think those are two of the best things, though there are many, many schools around the uh, like institutions, universities who have like Carter G. Woodson schools or Carter G. Woodson endowed chairs of study in these things. And so there's lots and lots of resources for them. But I'd say us at the NPS or ASALH, Association of Study African American Life and History.org. Are probably the two best to get a, a quick glimpse at things.
1: okay yeah. that's good not good to know. Um, I am curious I want to go back to another thing. you were talking about him being in West Virginia and my knowledge of mining in West Virginia is once you got into the mines, it was really hard to get away from the mines um, because the companies, would structure things in a way that people would be kind of locked into working for them and them alone. I'm curious, how the heck did he get out of West Virginia and get out of the mines to, to have the chance to do what he did?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Unfortunately, I don't really know the answer to that. I don't know how he managed to pull that off other than
1: he did. No worries. No worries. (laughs) Uh, we expect you to know a lot, not everything. Just most things. So no. <laughs> yeah, I, I try. I try. I well, what was just as Dr. <laughs> Woodson would want, I guess. No well
0: worries. what was the um what was his process for getting the
2: like getting a national week? For how he made it happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: yeah.
2: Oh yeah, he just kind of decided that this was gonna be a thing. Well, <laughs> he made it a thing. <laughs> <laughs> so he started with this idea i mean he wasn't the first one to try to have this idea i mean there had earlier been an attempt about a decade before uh, i don't remember exactly what it was, i think it was something like negro history literature week or something like that mm. that had been launched by some folks and it never really caught on so he tries 1926 this idea again connected with douglas and lincoln two folks who were very prominent already in emphases in history classes structure things around them 1926, I'm going to make this a thing, and I'm going to start publishing it everywhere that I can and try to get some attention. It doesn't really catch on, obviously, the first year because nothing really catches on at first. He gets a school district in North Carolina that jumps on board, one in Delaware, and then D.C. and Baltimore. Nothing from out.
0: Iowa? That's kind of weird. Nothing, no, nothing in comes
2: Iowa? in from Iowa, unfortunately. Okay, on that okay. first North one. Carolina, By though. I, year, I did
0: hear North Carolina in that one. Though. Yeah, North
2: Carolina is one of them. Same. By the second same. year, it, it grows a little bit because hmm. people recognize what's going on, and Dr. Woodson was very clear that Negro History Week is to be a little bit different than maybe many of us experience Black History Month to this day. I don't know how totally crazy he would be about the way a lot of us celebrate. I think part of what develops it so successfully in those early years is Negro History Week was never intended to be an occasion where you just come together and you share about different Black people in America who were the first this or the first that. time, It wasn't about lifting up and celebrating a few prominent people here and there and cycling through, you know, the 10 same names, men and women over and over and over and shuffle them in and out. That the intention always was to promote some of these stories and gather information for the intention that this week will be, uh, like, not necessary. It says this week only exists until it gets to such point where we recognize there needs be no such thing as a Negro History Week or a Black History Month because it's just simply history. And mm. it's all interwoven in that same story. Yep, I think it caught on because a lot of people recognized it wasn't something that was supposed to be competition. It wasn't supposed to be highlight the famous folks here and there. It was just saying this story deserves to be told side by side. And this is just a reminder to you. If you need a week to do it, it's a reminder that this may be the official Negro History Week. But it's a part of what you're supposed to be doing in creating that Negro History year. That is all interwoven with the collective tapestry of everything that comprises the American stories together. But sure. was
0: he was he instrumental, at least in his lifetime, of having a national proclamation week
2: is, I guess, what I was... No, so there's no national proclamation during his oh, okay. life. That's going to come afterwards. So it's purely his determination to continue to make this thing a thing year oh, okay. after year after year after year. It stays. It's only one week for his entire life up till 1950. It's two decades after he passes away. It's the first time, and it's here still not a government getting involved. 1970, 20 years after Dr. Woodson's death, some students at Kent University get together, put their thoughts together, and they're like, you know what, we need to make this, this should be a whole month here, we should start having this Black History Month thing, and they start informally celebrating a Black History Month in 1970, next year, other universities jump on board and start saying, yeah, that's a good idea, and you see this growth of a Black History Month through the early 1970s, and 1976 is when it then becomes official by President Gerald Ford as a part of that bicentennial of the nation, And President Ford isn't saying, you know, I don't remember the exact quote, but it's something about the oft-overlooked history of Black Americans in this last 200 years as well. And that through presidential proclamation, Mm -hmm. then every February after that has been maintained as the formal Black History Month. But it started just with Dr. Woodson and then later other students grasping on saying, yeah, we love this. We want to expand this until hopefully it won't be necessary anymore to highlight specific stories because... Teachers will have figured out what they should have figured out all along. It's not a month to celebrate certain people. It's saying you're not celebrating them the rest of the year. So we got to highlight that strength in this one month until you start incorporating it as part of every single lesson that is taught. And so it's just as normal as, you know, white history is in social studies classes.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, so huh. It's a challenge. It's yeah. a challenge. Okay.
0: Yeah, originally that's what my uh, question was. I th- I was wondering if he was instrumental in in creating like uh, sort of a, like a nationally pro- you know proclamation or a nationally recognized uh, week. Yeah, but he gets no, it, so it nationally
2: famous, but it's all it's all just kind of optional for who wants to participate and who doesn't. Although it does get crazy popular uh, moving through to the end of his life, but nothing formal until after he's gone.
1: Huh? Would he have at any point had the opportunity to meet? Uh, Frederick Douglass for example or any of the other prominent um, leaders in the
2: uh, yeah he has a lot of connections with the prominent leaders of his day he We've never found any evidence of him meeting Frederick Douglass. It seems unlikely, but I mean, there's a chance. Frederick Douglass dies 1895, which is the same time that Carter G. Woodson is enrolling in Frederick Douglass High School. Right. When he's 20 years old, so they do have some life overlap there. But don't believe they ever met. Though he certainly would be influenced by uh, his life and work that are going on there. Who would Dr. be? Mr. S- Woodson is going to have more connections with people like uh, Booker T. Washington, W. B. Du Bois, and then the next generation coming out from that. Names that this is where. Uh, american history often overshadows so much is this chunk of time which i think dr woodson is like this is his chunk of time is people between like frederick Douglass and harriet tubman and then on the other side we pick back up the story often people like rosa parks dr king martin or malcolm x there yeah. and it's almost like oh yeah there's this whole 70 years in the middle it's not like you know frederick Douglass handed a baton to, to martin Luther king and then he just took off <laughs> running with it and like, this yeah. is the chunk of time. Right. This exactly. is Dr. Woodson and Mary McLeod Bethune in this chunk of time. These movements don't just pass from one to another. Like There's a group of people whose names we don't know, as we know, you know the ones before and the ones after. But right. Who's, who's grabbing you, those stories? Who makes sure Martin Luther King has those resources to draw on speeches from? Right. Or others like, it's Dr. Woodson preserving this stuff. Could mm. you
0: uh, touch base just uh, briefly on Mary McLeod Bethune? Who, what her role is and what she,
1: what her history is. And also where that house was, because I think I may have missed it earlier.
2: Yeah. So her house is 1318 Vermont Avenue in DC. It is insanely close. It is walkable from Dr. Woodson's house. So a lot of folks, when they'll come, they'll visit, like, they'll do like both houses back to back. It's just a couple blocks. Like, you can walk it in like 10 minutes easy at a casual walking pace in DC. Mary McLeod Bethune, born 1875, same year as Woodson. She's the same age. She lives a few years longer. She, is they're they're really good partners so she's the president of his association for a bunch of years but mary mcleod bethune is going to be committed that one of the paths that she is going to feel is not so much education although she's going to help dr woodson with his work there she knows that it's activism but specifically activism connected to the role of women and girls that is being overlooked in these when it says these movements of justice are so often being led by men and prioritized by men and focused by men on male issues first And that women are being constantly overlooked and disregarded here. So she's going to create some groups. She starts up some girls schools, all girls training schools throughout Florida. Eventually she moves to D.C. and she's going to launch a group called the National Council of Negro Women. Which is designed to improve the life of black women and to advocate for them and to make them into a powerful political force to shape their own nation. Moving Mm. forward and quickly within just a couple of years has nearly one million women under her umbrella. Out of her Washington D.C. house, that are directly advocating in their towns and in their cities for women, to, for mm. Black women especially, to have the right to vote—not, I guess, not to have the right to vote, but to be able to exercise that right to vote that they have—and all of those things. Saying men will always be focused on male needs first, and if they think of us, it will be secondary, if at all. And mm. so, the role of the National Council of Negro Women, of which she's going to run for decades is going to be to make sure that women will always have a seat at the table at these meetings that the more famous male leaders of our history books are dominating the conversations. So that's her main role. She's, a, mm. she, she's called, the nickname that she gets, another of these often overshadowed individuals, she's called the First Lady of the Struggle. Sure. And she's an informal advisor to multiple presidents. Eleanor Roosevelt, the First Lady for FDR, is going to call Mary Bethune her best friend
1: really spends
2: mm. a lot of time together so mary mcleod bethune has a direct ear of the united states president uh, before and during the second world war which wow. is tremendously important she helps uh, you know she joins the military in capacity and brings in women into the women's auxiliary black women from her organization among the first to be officers in the united states army during that war they raise enough money to fund a warship called the ss harriet tubman the first naval ship in american history named for a woman of color Mm. she's Mm. a powerful driving force and she is also archiving but she is creating the national archives of the black or excuse me of black women to preserve that aspect saying even someone like Woodson with what he's preserving still he's got that blind spot as being a man and emphasizing prominent men in history and overshadowing people like us and we don't want to lose our stories either women and girls need to hear that same sense of strength and opportunity as Dr. Woodson is wanting these young boys to feel the pride in what they have and in cnw that national council of negro women also still exists today in washington mm. dc so both of their organizations are still alive still going strong in those legacies Wow,
0: it's it's Jeez. fascinating how w.e.b. Du-, du bois um is um how he typically disagrees with a lot of what uh, what's what's the best route forward for African Americans during that time? I mean, he disagrees with uh Booker T. Washington. He's, I guess, disagreeing with Woodson. It's kind of like you know, uh, it's it's interesting how he agrees with everybody. Yeah, I mean, it does it does seem like I mean, he had some obviously, you know, he was uh, if I'm uh, uh correct, you know, he was thinking that you know the ballot and voting was you know that's what's going to save us from a second slavery is how he put it, but um. Um, he does tend to sort of disregard a lot of, yeah, no, everyone else, this is this is the only path forward. And I think it is fascinating that you have to educate the people on history first in order to inspire them to want to take action for betterment in the future. So I just found that fascinating.
2: Yeah, I think one of the strengths of W. E. B. Du Bois that he gets that puts him into that condition is the guy just lives so long. He lives so much longer than everybody else. I mean, he hears Frederick Douglass speak when he's a teenager, and then he dies. I, if I remember it, I think he dies the day before the March on Washington in 1963. So he gets the opportunity to write like everybody's obituary of his time, and he <laughs> can kind of say whatever he wants because he hangs on. And I don't remember exactly how old he is, but he's in his 90s. He passes away in a massive chunk of time that he can continue to kind of advocate for his side of history just by nature that eventually at a certain point you keep outliving the generations who you were arguing with and you're still there.
1: Hear that Hatfield, I'm gonna outlive you and I'm gonna be the one writing your obituary and determining what people think about you.
0: I'm sure it'll be rife with grammatical errors.
2: <laughs> well and even in the obituary that he writes for like Dr. Woodson, it's not a nice thing. Like it it's a like he doesn't like insult him constantly the whole time but he's basically saying like you know this guy did a lot of good yeah but he got fully distracted and did a lot of things that didn't matter his writing he calls him what he say? he uses a phrase like the dry as dust harvard school i think is the phrasing that he uses about his writing that's just not interesting nobody's gonna look at this you know and it's still even in death he's still kind of getting these last jabs in on people who are all trying they're all trying to work for what they believe is in the best interest of this nation moving forward but He just, he's like the Highlander. He just hangs on forever and ever and ever.
0: And it's, but it's this, but it's fascinating how the approaches are different based on the family history. Like, um, I think uh, W.E.B. Du Bois was uh, born in, I believe it was in Massachusetts um, to free parents, whereas, you know, Booker T. Washington, Woodson, all, you know, born either as a slave or born to parents of slavery. And therefore, their approaches typically tend to be um, different. And it's I mean, this is it's just fascinating how, you know, your your traditions and history and upbringing, you know, have that sort of impact.
1: So, I don't know. I, just wanted to do yeah. I think they'd be curious to look at that uh, that aspect of what you're talking about, Hatfield. Um, and not that I want to give you credit for having a profound thought, because God knows I don't want to do that. But, um, <laughs> but you know, I mean, I think it's interesting. You know, is is the fact that there made n- I don't want to say there was no struggle, but I mean a different type of struggle that didn't include slavery in W. B. Du Bois see I said life right I can't talk. W. E. B. Du Bois' life and his parents' life, I should say, they they didn't have to go through that that whole slavery aspect, and some of the 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 oppression that goes along with that. Now, certainly, they 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 struggled and there was oppression, but and it's not well, to say it's easier, but you know, does that? I can see. I guess I can kind of. I, I would be very curious and interested to look at, seeing if the fact that. Uh, There was such a lack of uh, basically education was held back from enslaved people Um, and not that it it wasn't in other cases, but especially with enslaved people. Does that make a a difference?
2: There's a there's a quote from Dr. Woodson. I I can't find the exact word for word of it real quick, but where I think he talks about some of this issue and to paraphrase it, what he's saying is that the artist who grows up in like destitute. Is going to create a ba- a greater piece of art than the millionaire on their yacht, mm, the the sculptor who doesn't know where their food is coming from, has so much more inspiration they're drawing from than the person with the banquet set before them, and so they' again he he has it much more uh, much more eloquent sure. than the way that I, I was phrasing it there, but it's on that whole idea that stuff that is coming from someone who comes with nothing, whatever that means or has a harder struggle getting to where they are, is always, always, always going to outmatch in meaning that which is coming from someone who just kind of, it's my hobby on the side, you know, it's not a big deal to me. That these composers who are agonizing over what they have is better than somebody who can just kind of create something real fast and then you move on to the next thing. So I think he's speaking to that.
1: Mm. It's like the oversimplification of saying the kid who buys his bike as as opposed to the kid who has his bike given to him is going to take care of his bike better than the... You know,
0: and and, you know, to Du Bois credit, um, I mean, even though he was, um, you know, born, you know, from free parents and, you know, in the north, he still um, he if I'm correct, uh, from what I had read, he's still a little secluded. Uh, He's still a little withdrawn because he still deals with a a great deal of uh, racism in that area as well. Um, so even though he may not have the exact same sort of background, he he does still have um, like a struggle um, in in his childhood and that. So,
2: but, um, and you'd think yeah. they would have become natural allies, if nothing else, just by the vestige that they're number one and number two in black men getting a PhD from Harvard. You think, if nothing else, I would be like, hey, nobody else on this planet is going to understand what we've gone through but each other, right? In those first years, but it just. It just doesn't quite I don't want to portray that they're just like constantly enemies and at each other's throat. Sure, sure. The entire no, no, no. duration, but they have a very you know, it's it's combative. Sometimes you're sometimes you're able to see together through the same lens, and other times you're just Well then like you but, both educated at the same time and you're wrong. You know, you're but know I mean Du Bois has that problem
0: with, you know, other people. I mean, and he and he's not he he's not squeamish about, you know, expressing that, you know, either. So um yeah. Geldmacher, you've been uh, awfully quiet uh, this time.
1: Brian's having some lag issues, and so he didn't want to break into a conversation. That uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he, he nods his head at us. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So he didn't want to interrupt ac- ac- like start talking and accidentally interrupt. So.
0: Well, I no, I I was just wondering if there was anything that um um because. No? Okay. All right. That
1: <laughs> We'd have to wait 10 seconds for him to, to, to hear our question and then go from there. So. Uh, it
0: might actually be this um, the new uh, camera aspect of it. that. It probably
1: is. It probably is, to be honest with you. But, you know.
0: I mean, this is the first time we've literally been face-to-face with one of our guests. So, I mean, that's kind of a,
1: you know. I, I feel terrible for Brian because he just realized what we all looked like. And it's just like, hmm. You know, I mean, that had to have been a shock when the when everybody popped on, you know,
0: <laughs> and he gets to see the interior of my lovely closet,
1: which does it? exist. <laughs> it's it's spacious. It's not even a metaphor. <laughs> Hatfield turns around, and runs his hand across all of his jeans. Or whatever. Those those
0: are those shoes. Are. Those oh, are shoes. And those aren't even all
1: mine. All yours. How many pairs of shoes do you have? I've got like two.
0: I used to be like that, and then I got married.
1: (laughs) Do you think? uh, And then it's
0: like, well, you need a specific type of shoe to go to a specific place at a specific time, and so I was like, okay, yeah.
1: You know, you bring that up. That actually brings another question for me. Uh, Carter Woodson was he married?
2: No. Oh, he never married. He never had kids because he said straightforward that he didn't have time for that because his work was too important. Wow also be a distraction to him, so his 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 spouse, his family, if you will, was this work. This was his everything, and he couldn't afford to be distracted oh wow so he he just separated from all of that and where is he uh where is he buried now? He's buried in Suitland, Maryland, Lincoln Memorial Cemetery. It's just outside of washington d c it's about twenty minute drive or so from his home.
1: Was he a religious man <laughs> Uh, (laughs) No, I don't care for sure. Because you
2: can't always tell uh, someone on a personal level versus their public side. Right. Uh, Publicly, he had major issues with uh, religion as he saw it, not so much theologically, but the way that it was used, he felt to perhaps control or manipulate what could otherwise be significant efforts in black America. Okay. And so he was Mm -hmm. finding that a lot of folks would go to religious churches uh, for the purpose of one being seen mm-hmm. to be there or to try to go in for the express purpose of trying to recruit people for your other thing, whatever your other thing is. Sure. They're going to be like, oh, you know, these four or five prominent folks, you know, all go to this church, whatever. So if I want to make something happen, you know, I got to kind of go and that's where uh, you can kind of hobnob uh, with people that you couldn't otherwise. So I think he sees that churches have a potential to be very, very powerful and have done legitimate good. hmm in uh, improvement in history of them but it also has the potential to cause people to fall into a sense of false like activism sure if mm. you will that you feel sometimes just by going to church and hearing like a a, a social justice message or something like that that you're, you're right. doing something when in reality you could be doing a lot more in his eyes by getting out of that pew yeah and engaging in something
1: how about um Bethune, was she a religious person? And I'm not a religious person myself, mm-hmm. but I just that, for that matter, Fred, Frederick Douglass. I'm, I'm curious on all three of them.
2: Yeah, so uh, I guess uh, one last thing I'll add on Woodson before going to the other two. Some of his earliest books are on the history, so I'll just stick with the modern phrasing, the history of black churches from the Civil War moving forward. That's some of his earliest historical studies and tracing that evolution into it. Bethune is a deeply uh, religious person, she attempts to go. Oh gosh, I'm drawing a blank. It's been so long since I've given tours and drawn a blank.
0: <laughs>
2: Shut that for a year. Uh, the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. That's what I was going to say. She goes there and she uh, gets an education from there eventually and petitions to be a missionary to uh, Presbyterian Church, I think it is. Oh man, I'm out of practice. <laughs> so now say like, when you've been, you haven't given these tours in a year or so, you start to lose some things if you don't use them periodically. Yeah. <laughs> she petitions to be a missionary, but she's rejected to be a missionary and she's told that it's simply because missionaries have to be white and so she has some conflict Mm. through that but she remains a deeply deeply religious person but has to then recognize there's only some apparently religious traditions that you can comfortably worship in and recognize that you are able to be your authentic self without feeling like well I can go to that church yet but I could never do X Y Z in that church because of who I am as gender or racial or ethnic identity or what have you and so um, real quick, not, faith she is.
0: not to step on your toes um, mm-hmm. or to you know interrupt, but um, the fact that Woodson was documenting um, black churches n- wouldn't have necessarily been, you know, a religious push either. Because, you know, even through the civil rights movement, black churches were considered like safe havens for being able to
2: have meetings Absolutely. and stuff where you ordinarily would not. So,
1: OK, mm. yeah.
2: Yeah, so he's tracking that history of the religious movements among the people and its evolution, not so much like a "this is the right theology, that's the wrong theology" or taking sides there.
1: Sure, right. Yeah,
2: yeah it's an excellent observation there, and and uh, um, taking it around the circle, Doug. Oh. Yeah, Douglas. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, Douglas. Uh, his relationship with the religion is also kind of complicated. On that, because he's. He quickly, uh, even while he's still enslaved, believes himself to be kind of uh, emerging into Christianity and understanding some of what that is, but he is learning of Christianity while enslaved as a sense of oppression. As oh. a sense of control. That One of his memories that he talks about is his, uh, hmm. a person who's claiming to own his body at the time is going to be whipping his aunt, and while that whipping is going on, this person is citing scripture about being obedient to your master the entire time to justify That this, you know, this is divinely ordained in this moment. So Douglas has to wrap his mind around a theology of control and obedience and oppression in Christianity, which he eventually does. And he recognizes the benefits of being literate. You're able to get into these things for yourself over time. And he recognizes that's not in his understanding what that religion is supposed to be about. But he's always uncomfortable around the roles of Christianity and control. He always has hesitations there because it, I mean, we see those threads throughout history sometimes of people standing in pulpits telling you how to vote this or that, or, you know, this person has our values as this faith tradition, that candidate doesn't. Douglas is always uncomfortable about the power of religious organizations, though he does regularly attend for the rest of his life. That's specifically the AME tradition, African Methodist Episcopal, or the African Methodist Episcopal Zion traditions. Those are the two that he will attend and feel most comfortable in to be himself. In
0: in my um like historical nerdathon I'm like in around the 1849-1850 era and the writings that he has are very much critical not necessarily of Christianity but of the hypocrisy that he sees of a lot of uh, slave owners like you're saying qu- quoting scripture and a lot of people uh you know promoting uh, Christian teaching teachings while also u- using that to support the concept of slavery. And he's, I don't think he's, he's so critical of like you're saying the, um, the, uh, the, the ideology itself more so than the people who are practicing it uh, considerably.
2: So, yeah. Right. He goes so far when he writes his narrative, his first narrative in eighteen forty-five, he adds an appendix onto it after he's got it complete, because he realizes he has more and he needs to say. And that appendix is one hundred percent about ninety-nine percent about Christianity in America. And he wants to set the record straight on there. And he uses the phrase so called Christianity to be very clear. He's talking about Christianity as expressed in his observation by white America around him. Saying mm. that is so called Christianity, it is not the real Christianity. He's already trying to get that differentiation. He says, I see Christianity, and I have no problem with it, but so-called Christianity, oh, man, I have the biggest problem with that, and he says, I recognize the widest gulf between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, and that's what he wants to be clear, and so if someone hypothetically were to say to him, you know, are you a Christian, I think before he would answer that, he'd want to clarify what exactly they were asking in that moment, it's, the liberation side as he understood it rather than the oppressive side which was how he saw it same names but very different meanings in what that would mean so i think perhaps that delineation the separation could probably apply to all three of these individuals or you to ask them each that same question i think they probably want a few more clarifying inquiries before you know confirming one way or another on well, what exactly do you mean with that question
0: If you were wanting to um, be introduced into, um, like, say, for example, someone is, and I always try to ask people this. I think I've asked you this. um, If you're interested in, through this podcast or whatnot, interested in learning more about uh, Carter Woodson, um, is there any sort of writings or something that you would recommend as kind of like this would be a great jump off point um, to kind of introduce your your interests uh, to this particular individual or introduce this individual to you for more research.
2: So I think the best place, there are several books written about Dr. Woodson. They're not all in terribly wide distribution Mm -hmm. uh, in the grand scheme of things. I think some decent ones would probably, I don't mean this like insultingly or anyway, but probably some of the children's books that are out there about Dr. Woodson. Like there's one called Carter reads the newspaper which is set around that scene of him with, like, in the coal mines with those uh, reading the newspaper to those Mm. Civil War veterans and things Mm. there, and it's ways to kind of begin introducing him uh, to audiences, which I think is appropriate, too, because he said, you know, we change the future by introducing these things to children when they're at their youngest. It's a good way to connect there. Beyond that, though, because of how hard some of the books can be to find, or that they're all scholarly books in general, Uh, I would... uh, Stores, like with some of the videos that we have trying to boil this stuff down into smaller, more accessible ways to have two, three minutes here and there to get moments of Dr. Woodson that could potentially satisfy you to want to push a little further into those other resources that are a little more challenging to read. There's and not that, a lot that's accessible about Dr. Woodson, at least that I have experienced.
0: And that is nps.gov C-A-W-O. Is that correct?
2: That's right. That one and the videos as well, if it's just easier, uh, they're also hosted on our Facebook page, Carter G. Woodson Home National Historic Sites. So that would have the same videos as nps.gov slash C A W O, like Kawo Carter Woodson.
0: And while we're talking about uh, social media, uh, two things. One, make sure you follow us on uh, <laughs> History Bros Pod on uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. But also, I want to say, um, Kevin, you're getting to be quite the um, the uh, the rock star. Seeing a whole bunch of uh, Frederick Douglass, Part One, Part Two, Life of Frederick Douglass things that I've seen you guys post over the past week, where you've been out at uh, the actual, you've been on site, I guess, uh, giving some narratives of mm-hmm. his life and things that have been uh, have been going on. So, uh, any you want you want to talk about that real quick? You want to give us a little plug on that?
2: Sure. Yeah. So all three of our our sites, again, the Bethune home, the Woodson home, and the Douglas home all have their own separate Facebook page, but they put out you know related content quite a bit. And uh, especially as we've been going through Black History Month with all three of these sites being prominent, we've really kind of ramped up. And the ones that Jason specifically mentioning here, there's a series of videos that I did eight part video. The last one just went out uh, today, Sunday, the 28th. And the attempt in those was to read Douglas's narrative and then do eight videos in eight of the different places where Douglas talked about that event happening and then kind of explain the event that he was describing while you are literally seeing what the spot that he was in looks like in the present day. And is it it's an incredible is- experience to get to stand in some of those places and be like, this is where it happened. Like I'm literally standing right where he was.
0: Was this the first time for you in experiencing that kind of thing? Or had you been there before
2: for these? I'd visited them once before, just on my own out of personal interest. And that's kind of what spurred this idea is I was like, this stuff is incredible. Like this stuff all still exists and none of it is marked. And nobody knows when they're going past it, that this is what they're going past. It's all still Mm -hmm. here. And like, we know those words, the Douglas narrative is so popularly used in schools around the world there and what if I say you know as that issue that douglas confronted with the people didn't believe it was real at least some people and so here it says you know you can still see the tree lines that he's talking about and see the the old road traces as he's describing it and says don't take my word for it let's just take you there right and even though it's private property so can't always get you know as in the weeds as we would want to <laughs> at least not on camera to really show people all the nuts and bolts to say it's a real spot and this is the real spot because they don't even have like the silver signs you know Marking him as saying this is the scene of this is just, just another field. You wouldn't know it from anywhere else mm. driving along. It's trying to be like this stuff was real and in that tree line, you know, that's where he was born. This is the grave of that person. This is where the beatings happened, you know, this is where that religious revival occurred that changed his life, you know, and you get to see those places. It's really cool. And then a lot of people from those local areas are trying to figure out what on earth is this camera crew doing here and why are all these people wearing these strange hats?
1: <laughs> <laughs> But oh wow, that'd be amazing. Has there been any attempt to reach out to people, that the people that own those those lands to, to do any type of member, you know, to do anything with that?
2: So, on some, some yes, some no. <laughs> Fair enough. So there, I, I don't know that I want to say too much because some of it is still ongoing and sure. trying to, like, uh, convince certain folks that you know maybe we're going to do appropriate stuff on a site of because some of it some of it is still in the same ancestral hands as the families who were there and were responsible for the oppression of frederick and so oh. i think mm. we can understand why there might be some hesitation yeah on what exactly would we be doing broadcasting from their land about you know their great 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 you know whatever yeah hopefully there might be some really really cool opportunities in the future to get a uh, in depth and actually on the physical spots and foundations for some of those darkest moments, but don't know. Cause it's all still interwell. So many of those families are still there.
0: <laughs> how long, how long was this, did this process take to, to make these videos? I mean, was it shot over just a couple days and you guys have just been releasing them
2: like piecemeal after doing some editing and stuff or. Yeah. So we, we put out tons of videos uh, throughout the course of February myself and other colleagues of mine. This, this one was just me who was doing it. This one was actually pretty quick in the grand scheme of things. We filmed it all in one day, just one long day, start to finish. They're just driving side to side. And that was part because I'd been there before. I knew the ground. So having known it and having pictured it before, I was able to kind of pre-script where we were going to be and the angles we were going to, because I knew what the surroundings looked like. So we didn't have to try to reinvent things once we got there. And like, oh, what do we do about that 7-Eleven? You know, (laughs) that's sitting there. So it was pretty fast in filming. A solid day of working. And then the, you know, the post editing stuff was a little more time consuming they it's been not quite it for about a month before they came. it's
0: out. not quite guerrilla documentary making you know where it's like we're not allowed to be on here you know and then like having being chased off by people with shotguns but it is um um yeah, it guys, is I pretty think. no <laughs> but it's it's cool because i remember watching the one where you're like yeah and you know talking about the tree line and you know it was like yeah this is you know what he saw at that particular point it's just that kind of stuff we keep talking about the power of place and how um how fascinating that is to be you know to be tied to the ground i was actually um talking with a uh friend of mine had uh, informed me about this new uh docu-series that's on netflix about the age of samurai and um uh, i here we
1: go with more japanese stuff
0: no, I was unaware that this even came out. And if you get a chance, it's 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 over. Like, I don't know how many episodes it is, but it's fascinating. But um, having been there in those places of, you know, conflict and whatever, it's it's incredibly powerful. So even if it's just virtually being like in a video of saying like this is, you know, where Douglas did this and that. I, I think that's that's I think it's amazing. It's a wonderful opportunity and how cool of it for yeah, you so let me to share have the that I'm not sure the idea
2: behind where that came from aside from just yeah aside from just me having visited it having the idea part of where that also came from is one of my other colleagues in non you know pandemic times okay. does a summer yeah. bus tour through Washington DC oh. of a Mary McLeod Bethune bus tour that visits all these sites around DC and takes multiple busloads full of people to go on this physical journey around her so it started on that like oh wouldn't that be cool if we could do something like that you know on the eastern shore with douglas on a one day thing and obviously not realistic now but it certainly provides that opportunity maybe one day and you know roll up in those buses mm, and yeah. get people to stand you know physically on that soil where douglas you know took his very first steps and, you know those sorts of things or the soil where you know his blood dripped freely
0: are you guys ever going to have a like a like a Frederick Douglass Historic Site Teacher Institute
2: or anything like that? I mean, in the workings or so not independently. We do that oh. in partnerships with other groups and larger organizations like the Civil War Washington Consortium. But there's nothing uh, independently that we will be putting on. Oh, okay. at least not. That's in the works.
1: That's why you have to do Civil War Washington. The full one. They're happy. Hey. That's
0: how we were introduced. That's how Gildmacher and I were introduced to, you know, Kevin. And that was, and again, his just, it blew my mind, the very first statement that you made, just launching into that. And I'm like, what? I was like, you know, I was about ready to just hop on and start (laughs) slugging it out. And it was like, oh, this is, it was an amazing presentation. So, I mean, it's always like, I'm always excited to have you on board for one of these podcasts because I know you're just gonna have just amazing insight and information to share with everybody.
1: Hey Hatfield, talk to me okay. again when you've recited part of the What to America or What to a Slave is the Fourth of July on the steps of Frederick Douglass's home.
0: What do you what are you trying to say?
1: I'm saying that I've gotten to give part of the Frederick the famous Frederick, Frederick Douglass speech on the steps of his home. When you've done that, then I'll listen to you.
0: Okay. Well, I'm a uh, a full blooded Hatfield, so there you go. Yeah, Go McCoys. <laughs> so
2: I, I will add though, even though we don't do our own uh, independent teacher institute per se, we still do like this week. I've done several like virtual field trips. With mm-hmm. individual teachers who are reaching out, who uh, who I've met through different teacher seminar things, who just say like, "Hey, we want to <laughs> spend a day with you guys in the park, even during this pandemic thing." it's like oh, that whole device of walking this couple classes through the building, going through. So we still do. Right. So for any teachers who may be listening there, feel free to reach out to us, and we're happy to create something at any of these sites and try to connect with you either in the physical buildings, if we can, or not always able to sometimes and still do things through these virtual settings, even if it's not physically in the home.
0: And if, uh, if teachers wanted to reach out to try and uh, do one of these uh, virtual field trips, how would they go about it?
2: Yeah. So you can connect with us a couple ways on each of our websites that we have, the ones that start NPS.gov or yeah NPS.gov slash. And then our names are, they've all got a contact us link at the bottom. You click that, and it'll just give you a form that you can submit. It'll come to the park, and you can put in who you are. You know, if you want me, you can say me if you just want a generic request for anybody you type in what you're looking for, where you're from, and we'll get back in contact with you. That's one way, or you connect with us on any of the Facebook pages. You just shoot us a regular message on there. One of us will see it, and we'll begin working on it from there and get in touch and make things happen. There's incredible flexibility. It's not a one-size-fits-all. We're not just like, oh, you reached out, so you get, you know, this tour of these three rooms. Like, we'll create whatever you want in those moments to try to match in with your specific needs for where you are and what you're hoping to do and grade level and all that stuff.
1: Outstanding. Nice. Outstanding. So you heard it here first. uh, Heard it here first. If you want to hear from Kevin yourself, you can do it. (laughs) Tell him. I I understand if you mention the history bros podcast, they'll give you 10% off on all uh, virtual tours.
2: And, it, and if you're tired of hearing my voice as well, feel free to put in anyone but Kevin. Uh, so <laughs> that will also be received, and everyone will see that and have a good laugh at it. There you go. So because I listen to the History Bros, I do not want him. Yeah. <laughs> I,
1: I, I cannot imagine anybody I doing that. I could see them saying that about like Jason Hatfield, Jason Rude. Probably not Brian. I mean, he he's been pretty quiet. But uh,
0: I don't see how anyone wouldn't want to hear the dulcet, honeyed tones of Kevin Bryant on their virtual field trip.
1: That's what I'm getting at. You guys
2: need to talk to my wife.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We can record something. Just, you know, whatever you want us to say, we'll say it, you know. (laughs) Well, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us here on the History Bros. It is a blast every time um, I learned, uh, I, and I had very, very little knowledge of Kurt G. Woodson before this, but I can tell you what, uh, he's going to be in a, a lesson in my room this week at some point. So uh, thank you very much for that. My pleasure.
2: Thank you again, as always. Love the content.
1: Absolutely. Hey, we love you.
2: Yeah. It been great. It's feelings mutual.
1: Because <laughs> uh, you know we're going to be hitting you up again. I still haven't gotten to the whole Gettysburg thing, which uh, we're going to get that lined up here eventually.
2: Well, all I can say out of the many things that I have accomplished and achieved in life, right up there among them is the day Facebook sent me a notification and said that I have been recognized with the top fan badge. Yes.
0: <laughs> Probably because you're one of the few people that consistently interacts with us.
1: Uh, I was going to say. <laughs> I love it. Just just Good look stuff. in the. Yeah. Watch out. There may be a, a, a copy of uh, Jack Henson's One Man More going out. That's what we do to all the people that we really like. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we send to them all
0: <laughs> that's what- you know what, one of these days we're going to read this book and we're going to be like oh that was amazing I can't believe we made so much fun of it watch <laughs> that's what's going to happen
1: uh, well boys anything else
0: no I think uh, Brian needs to tone it down oh look at that Brian showing his Jack Henson's one man war he's
1: got it I didn't. Oh, oh, Brian. Yes, Brian. Uh, mine's across the street. I thought, oh, sorry, I got confused there. I thought you were talking about Kevin, you know, going by last name again there. It's like, what he's got? No, what? Come on. Oh,
2: no, I do not have that book. I was going to say, he,
1: <laughs> Kevin, is yet. A, he, yet, he's a respected yet. scholar. Why the heck would he have that?
2: Was that until it randomly arrives with an Iowa post stamp or whatever? No, 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 yeah. No, yeah. Yeah. no, no. Don't no, think no, he no, doesn't no. know where you live already. Don't I think don't. that Rude doesn't I know. I
1: don't know. I do not know. I swear <laughs> to God, I have not. No, I do not.
0: Raise your hand if you think Rude's already uh, stalked him.
1: Uh-uh. Uh-uh. No! No, I haven't! I swear to God, I haven't. I have not. I, the other two, yes. Not not Kevin. I, I, I have boundaries. You don't do that to national uh, employees or uh, federal employees. They've got connections.
0: The lady protests too much, methinks.
1: Nope.
0: Nope. Nope. Okay, well, you know, whatever. You know, we'll, we'll agree to disagree there. I Ruth, get the impression okay?
1: you're just baiting me at this point.
0: Is it working? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Kevin, thank you again so much. It is always a pleasure to have you on. You have the, the best stories, the most in depth information, and again, the dulcet honey tones of your voice. But no, it's uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on anytime. Please, God, anytime to break up the monotony of the three of us. It'll always be a pleasure to have thank you him. on board.
2: Precisely. I think I just heard a mysterious third voice there for a moment.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think you did. Oh, I think boy. you did. Oh, there it is.
0: Who is who yeah, is that? Ah, seriously, thank it's you a hacker. for me again. It's a hacker.
1: Hey, I'm not kidding. We got to we got to <laughs> hit up some uh, uh, some of that uh, Gettysburg action here soon. Absolutely. Um, yep. can make it happen at some point. I, sounds good. Sounds good. Well, we'll have to wrap things up for uh, today's episode, but do not be surprised if we see Kevin Bryan back or here. We should say here. We don't necessarily see. Well, we can see now. You can't out there in listener land. Uh, but don't be surprised if Kevin Bryan joins us again sooner than you think.
2: And for everyone who can't see me, feel free to send in a drawing to them of what you think I look like. <laughs>
0: I insane. second that. <laughs> I absolutely second that. I, I want to say let's get some fan art encouraged. rolling in.
1: We're gonna get that going. We're gonna see what we can make happen with that.
0: <laughs> we'll start start off, I'll give you I'll give you a little clue. We'll start off with a handlebar mustache. That's that's how it that's you know, that's
1: oh my lord. Think of
0: tying a young damsel to the railroad tracks. That's
1: where we start off. <laughs> oh Hatfield. Oh, Hatfield. Oh, Hatfield. All right, Rude, let's land the plane, buddy. All right. So for the history bros, my name is Jason Rude, joined by Kevin Bryant today, as well as Jason Hatfield and uh, who's that other guy? uh, Brian Gelmacher. We didn't hear much of him today, but thank you, everybody. Have a good one. We'll talk to you in a week. See ya. Peace out. Deuces.